let me start just by saying um, I, I'm, I've been really thankful to be here with y'all. Um, this month, if you didn't know, is um, Pastor Appreciation Month. And um, you guys have three amazing pastors. And uh, I know um, they work slavishly uh, to serve and love you. And so I, as an outsider, can come in and tell you that you um, need to appreciate them. Encourage them by your kindness. Let them know the, difference, the differences that they're making in your life and the way that they're pointing you to Jesus. And so I encourage you to tell Ben and Ryan and Jimmy those things, to let them know uh, the ways that they've blessed your life. Um, it goes a long way for us as pastors when we occasionally get to hear those good words from the people we love and serve. I am, um, and, and thank you for, for having me and being so hospitable to me, um, and uh, I appreciate that very much. Today we're going to be in one verse in the book of Proverbs. We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 11. And hopefully kind of summing up and bringing um, these three talks together this morning. So where we've been is we've been in Jonah and saw that the more that we know, the harder it is to love. And yet, as we look to the gospel, as we look to Jesus and his incarnation, as he moves in, we are changed by that. We're changed by his pressing in and entering in. Even though he knows all about us, he still moves in to love us. And so we can be changed by that love. So that we too can press in and love those that we know. Like Diggory, we can see the tears of Jesus and be moved and be present in our campuses. And when we fail, we look back to Jesus and his incarnation and remember that he presses into us in our failures. And then last night we looked at the Good Samaritan and this whole idea of covenants, of this relationship, this promise that God enters into with us. To love us. To be our God. And not just to love us, but to know that that love involves action. That He's a God who moves in and redeems us. He buys us back. He purchases us in the midst of our sin and brokenness. He's a God who loves and acts. And it's great cost upon Himself that He does that. It's the cross, the sacrifice that allows Jesus to be a God to act and love us. Because what we need is His righteousness, His life. What we need is our sins paid for, forgiven. And it is through the cross that Jesus does that. And so today we sum it all up by looking at this verse in Proverbs and then going to and driving home the resurrection. We're going to look at this idea of calling, this idea of vocation. That vocation is that thing that's found in those places where you're implicated, where I'm implicated for love's sake to love and to act. Your vocation, as Frederick Buechner says, is the place where the world's deep hunger and your deep gladness meet. The place that enables you to bring grace, common grace, to a common world. That's what we're going to look at this morning from Proverbs 11, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. 
By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Let's pray. God, help us this morning to see and glory in you, to glory in your resurrection, that you are making us into hints of hope, foretaste of the kingdom, the kingdom that you're going to bring because Christ was raised, because Christ was vindicated. You're going to bring new life. You're going to end the brokenness. And so I pray this morning through this text in Proverbs that we would see that as you make us righteous, as you undo all that has been all the wrongs of the world, um, and as you use us in that process of doing that, um, God, you're glorified and we are satisfied. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. This is a great, you know, this time of your life is a very crucial time. It's why uh, one of the reasons RUF exists is to invest in you at this crucial time in your lives. And many of you are making decisions that will impact your futures during this time in your life. Now, some of those decisions will be pressed out. You'll extend them for some of you as you go through different trials and try different things out. But Here's where you make decisions about what your life might look like in the future. What are you going to do with your life? If you sit there, I don't want you to raise your hand, but as you think about this, how many of you know what you want to do? How many of you knew what you wanted to do way back then? Way back when you're a kid and you're now involved in a major or a calling that helps you pursue that. How many of you are still trying to figure that out? You feel lost. It seems like every day you step on campus or every semester when you take a new class or when you have to take a viewing the wider world class, suddenly you're like, hey, maybe I want to do that. And you're really struggling with what you're going to do with your life. Which ones of you have stepped onto campus like the idealistic Rammies and thought, I'm going to change the world and yet now have become cynical because of your time on campus what are you considering as you search for a calling and as an occupation is it money are you thinking about man i'm investing myself now in a degree that will have the most benefit for me and pay off for me in the future and so i'm going to do this 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 degree and hopefully it's going to result in me making a lot of money maybe it's pragmatic that you are good at something and so you're pursuing something because you're good at it you like it it comes natural to you maybe you're looking for something that brings glory something that attributes back on yourself lots of praise and so you invest in this degree or this class because you know that by doing so you are it reflects well on you and you receive glory from that and that makes you feel good and so you're can you continue to pursue that maybe it's impact You want to do something that impacts the world, that has great impact in someone else's life. Maybe for most of us, it's probably happiness. It's going to make me happy if I do this. What would it look like if we found joy in our callings, in the pleasure of God, and in the joy of our cities, our campuses, our homes? What would it look like if we had a calling 
that met this place, this deep need in the world with our deep gladness and knowing that our best and most satisfying gladness comes from glorifying God and then bringing joy to others in our city. That's what our text talks about. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. When it goes well, this idea of prospering, of flourishing, thriving in every regard. That's what the proverb is talking about. That this city, when it goes well for the righteous, when it goes well for them, when they flourish, they are flourishing in health and influence, assets, talents, gifts, and skills. They are gaining and growing and flourishing. And yet the rest of the city isn't envious. They don't resent the prospering of this group. Right? Isn't that the great temptation? The great temptation is when we see someone else prospering, doing well. We grow envious and covetousness, covetous at heart. We want what they have. We look at their Facebook wall or their Instagram photos. And we're like, man, they're doing so much. They're living a life. I want that. And yet in this verse, it seems that when the righteous prosper, the, the city isn't envious. They don't resent the prospering of the group. This is an unexpected phenomena of the proverb. The people in the middle, at the top, and at the bottom are rejoicing because of the righteous's prosperity. The righteous. Who are these righteous ones? These flourishing ones are the righteous. They use their wealth, their status, their influence, their power for the cause of justice. They steward all that they have in the ways of God. They care for the less fortunate, the broken, the disenfranchised, the forgotten. They disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the community. The wicked in this text, in turn, what do they do? They put their own economic and social needs ahead of the community. If any of you have seen uh, the television show on Netflix called House of Cards, which is a story about Frank Underwood, it, it shows a picture of that kind of thing. The wicked prospering and doing everything they can to leverage themselves into positions of power. In fact, the Christians should live entirely different. That's what the righteous would do. If the city's going to rejoice because the righteous are flourishing, the righteous must be living in a different way. How are they living? As they accumulate power, authority, right? Power is bound up in authority. If you have power in your workplace, if you're working at McDonald's and you've been promoted to the place of assistant manager, maybe it's because you were the best fry guy there was. Every one of your fries was crisp and delicious. And, the, and your manager saw it and said, man, dude, you can fry a fry. You need to be on the track to assistant manager. So what happens? You become the assistant manager. What happens when you become the assistant manager? You're given authority. Authority over some little peon who now is the fry guy. And you manage that guy. And the temptation when you're given power, just like it's been given to Frank Underwood in the story House of Cards, is that you take that power and you leverage it for yourself. How are you going to look the best? You take advantage of the peon. You use your authority over the other little fry guy that took your place. But this verse seems to emphasize that the righteous 
do well and they flourish. So you as the assistant manager, or maybe like Dwight Schrute, the assistant to the regional manager, you've been given this power, right? Dwight's the perfect example, by the way, right? Should have thought of that before instead of just now. He's the perfect example of taking his power and authority and using it to crush people or try to crush people. But the righteous, when they receive this flourishing, the people underneath them, the city, the rest of the middle, the top and the bottom, all rejoice because they've been given this power. So what does that mean? That that power, that authority must be coupled with vulnerability. You see, a good leader, someone who has power and has been given authority, is also a vulnerable leader. It's someone who takes what they have and doesn't leverage it against the weaker people in his organization, but actually is vulnerable to those people, actually goes down to their level, listens to them, does whatever he can to help them flourish. And so when he flourishes, they rejoice because he's flourishing and helping them to flourish. The righteous do this. They sacrifice The city rejoices because they know they will share in the justice, health, and shalom. That wholeness, that peace that comes. That they will share in that. And so they rejoice. The rejoicing city is a unique term. It's used only in one other place in the Bible. It's a military term. Ecstatic rejoicing. Jumping up and down for joy. Exaltation and triumph. The way one celebrates a victory when they're delivered from an oppressor. When the righteous flourish, the city rejoices. The picture is they've been released. They've been given shalom, justice, and they celebrate it. The war is over. We're free. We're free again. For a city to rejoice and to celebrate like this means that the righteous are making a difference in their city. They're bringing transformation to their city. It's not just used clothes being given to the Salvation Army and a poor person finding a $100 dress for $5. It is more than that. This doesn't bring that kind of joy. Well, maybe it doesn't. Maybe for some of you it does. What? I found this dress for five bucks. It's a hundred dollar dress. And you jump up and down. The question is, how are we going to do this? How do the righteous bring this kind of rejoicing? How are you? You are the righteous ones because of Jesus. Jesus has made you righteous. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ then His righteousness has been granted to you. You have been given His shalom, His wholeness, and He has taken on your brokenness. And so you are the righteous. And so if you flourish on your campuses, if you flourish in your families, do the people around you look to you and rejoice because you have flourished? How are we going to be that kind of people? How is your RUF group going to be that kind of group that sees the brokenness, knows it, and still presses in to love it, and loves it in such a way that you disadvantage yourselves for the advantage of others so that they rejoice whenever you're flourishing? 
It's to become this foretaste of the kingdom, this hint of hope. Right? Jesus brought the kingdom. He brought what was coming in the future. He, he comes in fullness and He brings it now. And so whenever He goes around preaching, He preaches the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 9.35, Jesus went into all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And this is what John the Baptist told the people was going to happen, that the kingdom of heaven was near. And what did it look like for him to preach the good news? He preached that he was the king. And what it meant for the people that he was the king. Luke 4 is, a very, is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's where Jesus shows up at the, a synagogue, his local synagogue. And he goes there, they're having worship. And as he goes forward, he pulls the scroll from Isaiah. And he reads the scroll. And it's his, it becomes his mission statement. What is Jesus' mission statement? It's in Luke 4. It's a passage from Isaiah 61. And it's a preview passage. A preview passage in the Old Testament tells what is coming. That redemption is coming. That consummation is coming. And so Jesus intentionally inaugurates his ministry with one of these kingdom preview passages. And so he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then He sat down and announced, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, the future film, the feature film has begun. The kingdom of God has broken into the world. And here's what it means. It means that because I flourish, because I am the king, I am going to bring flourishing to you. When Jesus is performing miracles, he's doing more than just healing the individual sufferer. Although he was definitely doing this. Jeff White, who is a PCA pastor in Harlem, New York, explains it like this. When Jesus healed people, it was like he was reaching into the future, full kingdom of God, and yanking a foretaste of it into the present. As if he were announcing, in the feature film, there will be no blindness. So today I give sight to the blind beggar Bartimaeus. In the feature film, there will be no leprosy. So today I touch the lepers and make them clean. In the feature film, there will be no death. So today I say to Lazarus, up from the grave. The mission of Jesus was to say, God is building a kingdom. I'm inaugurating it. I'm inviting sinners to follow me, to enter into it. And through my atonement, it's possible for me to rescue people out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into, the king, into my kingdom, the kingdom of light. And I will continue to build my kingdom through my church. And I will return one day and bring it to full consummation. Then my people will live eternally with me in new heavens and new earth, enjoying intimate communion with God and living without war, without pain, without suffering, without evil, without death. Foretaste, 
hints of hope. That's what Jesus did. When he flourished, which he did because he was Jesus, the people rejoiced. The crowds followed Jesus everywhere he went. Many times Jesus couldn't get a break from the crowds. Why? Because they were tasting the kingdom. Like little um, Minchie's cups, Froyo cups, right? You ever gone to the Froyo place and gotten a little cup or spoon? And you take it and you, well, let me try this flavor. And you taste the tart one, you're like, oh, it's sour, that's awful. Or maybe you love that. <laughs> you taste the Dolce de Leche and you're like, oh my gosh, this is the kingdom. <laughs> that's what we are. That's what you are. You're that cup. You're a foretaste of the kingdom. You're a hint of the hope that is to come. God has made you that. You are that for your campus. RUF is a ministry built to be a hint of that hope. Yes, we are definitely hints of brokenness. We are authentic. We're vulnerable. We don't hide who we are. We don't bring this power that comes from God to our campus without any vulnerability. We identify with people in their weakness. We know them and we still move in and love them at great cost to ourselves. But we provide in that a hint of hope. And so our vocation meets us there. Your calling meets you there. Where is the place that you can be a hint of hope? Where is a place that you can be a foretaste of the kingdom? Where is a place that you can be the Minchie's cup? Of what Jesus is bringing in the future. We are called to steward our prosperity. In such ways that we offer others a foretaste of the coming beautiful realities of a consummated kingdom. A foretaste of justice and its beauty. Its joy and its wholeness and peace. And when we do... When we sow the kingdom into the fabric of the city, in the fabric of our campuses, then we are able to begin prompting the deep dancing in the streets that is the rejoicing of Proverbs 11. And wouldn't you like to see that? See that deep gladness and joy that comes to others who don't have that who are living in darkness, who are living in despair, who are sowing themselves in every sort of way that will not satisfy them. Like Jeremiah says, they're digging up, digging up holes that can't hold water. Everybody you go to class with who does not know Jesus, and sometimes even us, are digging those same holes and throwing water in it and hoping it's going to hold the water, and it just trickles away because it can't do it. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing to instead see them come to the cup and drink from the living water and rejoice because of what Jesus has done? To dance in the streets because you are prospering because of Jesus. Your vocation is meant to be found there. You are to harness your talents, the calls of our church, to bring a greater measure of justice and peace, wholeness and hope to people who are hurting.
word and deed. Word and deed ministry that you're called to two sides of the same coin. Our gospel work is to come and to bring gospel deeds, hints of hope, foretastes of the kingdom to those people who are broken and hurting. It's also to bring a gospel word to help them understand why and how this matters for them. Why? That's what Jesus did. When he healed someone, he didn't just stop at their healing. He pointed to himself as the Messiah, as the Holy One of Israel that was coming to establish a new kingdom for the people of Israel. And he articulated that, not just with the action of the deed of love, but he gave words of love to it, the gospel. And we do the same. And when we do, we become these foretastes of the kingdom. If you're a nurse, you share your medical skills on the behalf of families who, can't, who don't have it. If you're a banker, you, you apply your financial minds to fighting predatory lending that families are victimized by. All of these things are ways that we bring, become foretastes of the kingdom, make us hints of hope. So there's all kinds of work that you're going to do. In fact, you're going to spend in your lifetime, if you go to church, 2,266 hours in the pew. And you're going to spend 96,000 hours at work. And the place that God calls you is the place where the deep hunger of the world and your deep gladness meet. And so what kinds of work are you going to be called to? And that's kind of where we want to move to and wrap up. Is that if you are meant to be this foretaste of the kingdom, if you are meant to be this, the righteous ones that cause the city to rejoice, because of Jesus, bound up in what Jesus has done, bound up in his resurrection, remember we stand and we point forward. We point forward to the kingdom that is coming and we live that out in the present. And so we discover the places. We know the places that are broken. We move into those places that are broken and we love in the places that are broken and we act. And we act by bringing gospel words and gospel deeds. And so where I want to challenge you and finish this is thinking about long term, your callings in this life. How are you going to leverage that? How are you going to be that kind of righteous one? You're going to hope in the resurrection and the gospel. That is the foundation for this. And then you're going to go off and you're going to choose a job and a career and you're going to work. And what kind of work can you do? There's all kinds of work. There's redemptive work. Redemptive work models God's saving and reconciling action. Redemptive work is the work of an evangelist or a pastor or a counselor or a peacemaker, writer, artist, producer, songwriter, poet, actor. There's creative work. Creative work fashions the physical and human world. Sculptors, actors, painters, musicians, craftsmen, potters, weavers, seamstresses, designers, metal workers, carpenters, builders, fashion designers, architects, novelists, urban planners. There's providential work. God's provision for sustaining human creation, maintaining the universe, the human life in an orderly and beneficial fashion. 
conserving, sustaining, replenishing, creating, redeeming the world. What kind of jobs are those? There's public works and utilities jobs, policymakers, shopkeepers, career counselors, shipbuilders, farmers, firemen, repairmen, printers, transport workers, IT specialists, entrepreneurs, bankers, brokers, meteorologists, research techs, civil servants, business school professors, mechanics, engineers, building inspectors, machinists, statisticians, plumbers, welders, janitors, everyone who helps keep the economic and political order, institutions working smoothly, reflect this part of God's labor. Justice work, maintaining justice, judges, lawyers, paralegals, government regulators, legal secretaries, city managers, prison wardens, guards, policy researchers, advocates, law professors, diplomats, supervisors, administrators, law enforcement personnel. Participate in God's work, military, maintaining justice. Compassionate work. God's involvement in comforting, healing, guiding, shepherding. Doctors, nurses, paramedics, psychologists, therapists, social workers, pharmacists, community workers, nonprofit directors, emergency medical personnel, counselors, welfare agents, all reflect this, God's, this aspect of God's labor. Revelatory work. God's work to enlighten with truth. Preachers, scientists, educators, journalists, scholars, writers. And maybe encompassing all of this is the call of a mother. There was recently an ad agency that uh, Mullen that uh, was getting a lot of tension for a viral job posting of a grueling sounding job. The company placed a classified ad looking to fill a director of operations position. The job had a mandatory 135 plus hours a week of work and required the job holder to be on call at all times, day or night. Qualified candidates should have a knowledge of psychology, medicine, personal finance, culinary arts, and basic technology skills. The job also had physical requirements, the ability to stand for hours, to lift up to 75 pounds, to be constantly moving and operate with little to no sleep. No vacations, no breaks, 135-hour work week and a salary of... The job ad got 2.7 million impressions from paid ad placements, but only 24 people inquired about this job. <laughs> when they were interviewed by webcam, their surprised responses were captured and turned into this ad, this spot. And the spoiler was, being a mom is the toughest job in the world. As these people discovered what they were being called to and what it was, at first they were aghast. How could I not be paid any money for doing this job? And then they realized that it was their mom and they were overcome with emotion. You see, all of these kinds of work, maybe you heard something that you want to be, something that you're pursuing, isn't meant for you. It's meant for God and for the joy of the city. And as you bring that and live that, you will be satisfied. When you prosper, when you flourish, you do these works, and the campus rejoices. The place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet.
I want to end with a story um, about J.R. Tolkien. Tolkien was a writer, as most of you know. He wrote The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings. Um, when he was writing The Lord of the Rings, he found himself in a place where he couldn't finish. He was struggling to finish the works. And at the same time, which just to remember, you don't ever separate, right? We're real people. We're three-dimensional people. And Tolkien was just that. The war, the war is going on. So he's trying to finish this story, this fantasy novel, this series of novels. And at the same time, the war is happening. And he's afraid that because of these things and the way he's feeling, he'll never finish. And so during this time, he writes a short story. And it's called, the short story was called Leaf by Niggle. He's an artist, and he's asked to do, Niggle's an artist, and he's asked to do a mural on the side of a building. He takes money to start the work. He's going to make a tree on this, as a mural on the side of the building. And so he, he sets off, and he starts on one leaf of the tree. Months pass, years pass, and the only thing that he's completed is one leaf. One leaf. The officials who have given him money to paint this mural come to him and complain. We gave you money and you haven't done anything. You've just completed one leaf. And Nigel responds, I'm working on it, but I, I just can't get it. He keeps after it day after day until one day Nigel dies. He wakes from death on a train to heaven. And as the train comes into heaven... He sees something on the wall. He sees something in heaven. He sees something. And he, as he gets closer, it starts to take on shape. And when he gets off the train, he runs to what he sees. And before him, in heaven, stands a tree. It's his tree. It's his tree finished. He could only do one leaf in his life. If you could say that of a tree that it was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind. This is what Niggle had so often felt and, and imaged in his mind and, and guessed, but had so failed to catch it, to reach it. He gazed at the tree. He slowly lifted his arms and opens them wide, and he says, It is a gift. He was referring to his art. And also to the results. But he was using it quite literally. It is a gift. He went on looking at the tree. All the leaves he had ever labored at were there as he imagined them. Rather than as he had made them. And there were others that, he, that had only budded in his mind. And many that might have budded if only he had had time. Tim Keller writes about this and says... The world before his death, his old country, had forgotten Niggle completely. And there his work had ended unfinished and helpful to only a very few. But in his new country, the permanently real world, he finds that his tree, in full detail and finished, was not just a fancy of his that had died with him. No, it was indeed part of the true reality that would live and be enjoyed forever. You see, Tolkien had a Christian understanding of art, of vocation, of work. 
He believed that God gives us talents and gifts so that we can do for one another what he wants to do for us and through us. And so as a writer, for example, he could fill people's lives with meaning through the telling of stories that convey the nature of reality. Niggle was assured that the tree he had felt and guessed was a true part of creation. And even the small bit of it he had unveiled to people on earth had been a vision of the true, a hint of hope, a cup, a foretaste of the kingdom. See, artists and entrepreneurs and pastors can readily identify with Niggle. They work from visions, often very big ones, a world they can uniquely imagine. Few, even a significant percentage of their visions see it. And even fewer have come close. Those of us who tend to be overly perfectionistic and methodical, like Tolkien himself, can identify strongly with the character of Niggle. Because really, every one of us is Niggle. Every one of us imagines things, imagines accomplishing things. Every one of us finds ourselves largely incapable of producing those things. Every one of us wants to be successful rather than forgotten. Every one of us wants to make a difference in life. But that's beyond the control of any of us. If this life is all there is, then everything will eventually burn up in the death of the sun and no one will be around to remember anything that has ever happened. Everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference. And all the good endeavors, even the best of them, will come to naught. Unless there's a God. If the God of the Bible does exist... And there is a true reality beneath and behind this one. And this life is not the only life. Then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones pursued in response to God's calling, can matter forever. That's what the Christian faith promises. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And so what is your vision, students? What is your leaf? What is the thing that is driving you through the hard labors of study or driving you to escape the hard labors of study so you pursue a major that doesn't require much of you? What's driving you? What's your leaf? There is a tree. There is beauty. There is justice. And don't be shocked if all you get is a leaf. Amidst the thorns in the world, you may just get a leaf. But if this leaf points to what is coming, it should affect your work. It should give you hope. It should be a foretaste of the kingdom. Hope in that. Hope in what Christ can do. As you know, as you love, and as you act. Let's pray. We praise you, God, that you raised Jesus from the dead. It is our only hope. Not just for eternity, God, but for every good endeavor that we set to in this life. There is hope for us.
There is hope that what we do in this life will carry on into eternity. That we will be like Niggle and that we will see our leaf become a tree full bloom in new heavens and new earth. Help us, Lord, not to get so bound down in the common everyday problems of our life that we forget what you're promising us. And help us, Lord, to be informed, changed by the future so that it impacts us in the present. That your resurrection would truly cause us to flourish and would cause our campuses, roommates, lost friends and neighbors, lost family to rejoice. We ask all these things in Christ's name.